0: Namurta sah, goa tu arahatur sama sambuddha sah. Namurta sah, goa tu arahatur sama sambuddha sah. Namurta sah, goa This being the first Sunday of the month, month of November, we've all presumably turned the page on our Forest Sangha calendar and hopefully read and started contemplating the extract from, from translation of teachings by Ajahn Chah and the, well, at least the beginning of that rather longer than usual extract, it says that the place where delusion arises is also the place for awakening. And as I say, it's a longer than usual quote and I confess I didn't manage to commit the rest of it to memory. But certainly that first line is something that draws attention and worthy of contemplation. All of it is, all the verses, but that first line there, the place where delusion arises, that all the suffering that we experience, is also the place for awakening, uh, freedom from suffering. There's a nice photograph on the page of Ajahn Chandapalo walking down a mountain slope from Santa Loca, a mountain hermitage in the Italian Alps and with these ski poles. Contemplating this myself, one of the images that comes to mind is how we so regularly imagine that what we're looking for exist somewhere else. One of the most familiar patterns that I come across in in talking with, at least uh, Western Buddhist meditators, is the sense of how driven people appear to be, how driven to become something better, to prove something to somebody, to get rid of something. And it's a, a characteristic that well, as I say, certainly it's evident amongst Western Buddhist meditators they're feeling they've got to go somewhere else, get something more. Ajahn Chah is familiar with this phenomenon, and he's 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 drawing our attention to it, and saying in fact he's saying that the very place uh, that delusion arises is also the place for awakening, encouraging us to look differently at this. Idea we have. Now it's understandable that we have such an idea if, you, if you've been brought up and you've been taught that you're, you're, a, you're a sinner and you're damaged goods and you somehow have to earn your forgiveness or goodness or happiness. And that bit of conditioning would certainly give rise to striving and achieving. And then the education system. We look at our education system and at least up until very recently, this system was designed by academics who had the view that uh, the, the thing everybody should be striving for is to go to university. That was uh, the thing to do. And and striving and achieving and, and still, uh, even if that's not considered as the goal of all education, a lot of the system is geared towards getting evidence of how much achieving is going on. So this um, goal-oriented achieving attitude is perfectly understandable. But when we allow it to dominate and and certainly when it seeps into our spiritual aspirations, it can create all sorts of problems for us. uh, The idea that we're going to find awakening, we're going to find freedom from delusion by running away from delusion maybe the delusion that we want to awaken from exists in just the very place as that which we're seeking, awakening. The idea that we need to read another book, we need to find another teacher, we need to go on another retreat, always going somewhere, looking for something more, keeps a lot of Buddhist meditators very, very busy and very far from contentment. So if we start to get this message and consider that this is perhaps not the solution, always going somewhere else to get something more, and that maybe what we're looking for exists within the same place as delusion that's arising, like here, if what we're experiencing... If we're suffering, then it's arising out of delusion and and if we can accept the suggestion that we need to train our attention to be more here rather than following that impulse to go somewhere else and do something more, get something more, to fill the gap, to compensate for the feeling of inadequacy or lacking, slow down. Stop following such impulses and feel, investigate, look into that which is right here. Even when what is happening here is thoroughly unattractive. When we're totally caught up in delusion, then the chances are there's going to be some suffering happening. Well, for sure there'll be some some degree of suffering. And this is what Ajahn Chah, this is what the Buddha, this is what all the great teachers want us to stop and look into what's really going on here. And often what's really going on here is delusion, is manifesting as some variation, some degree of fear. Fear is very primal, very very difficult actually to own up to. Of course there are very good reasons for... uh, feeling afraid and not wanting to show it. There's understandable reasons why we may not want to be expressing or showing our fear. But if we ourselves don't know fear when there's fear present, then we're being motivated by fear into acting in ways that we can't really be responsible for. And regrettably, sadly, and even tragically, we build up a habit of denying such expressions of delusion, denying fear, and we end up with a whole big backlog of fear. Until for many people, even momentary moments of fear become unmanageable and people get possessed with anxiety. Normally manageable fear becomes unmanageable because instead of living consciously through fear, instead of seeing through fear instead of getting a good handle on fear we push it away we deny it and so this backlog of denied fear is a massive obstruction not just for people on the spiritual journey not just for Buddhist meditators but for everybody and then we can be manipulated very easily manipulated because we've got this fear stored away There's all this energy stored away and we don't know about it. Mm. We need to know about it. Mm. So we need to stop running after some imagined awakening and take a look at what we're trying to run from. Mm. We might think we're striving for awakening, but often it's the case. We're just striving to get away from here because here is really frightening. And a lot of people who sit on meditation retreats, this is their experience start to feel anxious, unreasonable, irrational, fears manifesting, nebulous fears. So where's it all coming from? We deny fear long enough, it becomes very difficult to deal with, very difficult to own up to. So it becomes a compulsive habit of avoiding fear when it arises. So... It warps, if you like, it warps our our perceptions. Many people, or maybe we can even say the majority of people, are chronically afraid and don't know it, And, and thereby are chronically unhappy and don't know why. Desperately trying to become happy, which again, what for a lot of people, is their pursuit of awakening. They really just want to become happy again. So Ajahn Chah is saying, well really the thing to do is stop trying to find or reach or arrive at or get awakening but stop and look into delusion, look into what's happening right here and now, even when what's happening right here and now is perhaps frightening. Especially if it's frightening. One of Ajahn Chah's monasteries is a it has the name uh, Abhayagiri Monastery, which is a Fearless Mountain Monastery in California. And Paya, that means fear or terror, and certainly something that the Buddha spoke about and taught about. Abhayā is fearlessness, and I think this is a really excellent name for a monastery. This is a really, really good name for a monastery. Because it brings up into awareness a task that we all have of getting a handle on fear. Nobody gets through life, including the Buddha, including Ajahn Chah, all beings, not even just human beings, certainly all mammals, experience the emotion of fear. and Fortunately, as human beings, we have the potential for cultivating a conscious relationship with fear, So we're not driven by it. So we're not defined by it. So we're not undermined by it. But that is work. And that's work that all of us need to be able to do. We need to be able to first recognise that we don't have to be afraid that we're the only ones who are afraid. Everybody feels fear and at some stage becomes afraid. afraid that well, if we're on the spiritual journey maybe we're afraid we're not making progress, maybe we're afraid we're using the wrong technique or making the wrong effort or or maybe after years we we start doubting and afraid that we've wasted our life or fear can manifest in all sorts of different ways and, and it's the case for many of us in that we grew up without a very uh, good example of how to live wisely in relationship with fear. Present, world we live in, materialistic, uh, defined by secular values, much of it, the emphasis is on how to be happy, how to get happiness, and with all the luxury, all the convenience that we have access to, we often use these opportunities to avoid the things that we don't like. And certainly we don't like fear. So rather than becoming more conscious in our relationship with this perfectly normal emotion, this perfectly normal expression of consciousness we call fear, instead of becoming more aware, more conscious, more competent in negotiating that emotional territory we push it down into the swamp of unawareness, the dark swamp of unawareness. And we don't even mean to do it. It's just that, unfortunately, nobody's pointed out to us how important it is to be honest in regards to such emotions. When we push into unawareness, it's like we create a monster. Fear becomes a monster that we're terrified by. And for some people, it ends up being like an army of monsters that they feel they're constantly under attack from. and live their lives regrettably in constant fear. And intelligence is undermined. Emotional warmth is obstructed when we're possessed by fear. So recognizing this and Hajin Chara's pointing out how we don't want to fall for the trap that thinking that what we're looking for awakening exists anywhere else other than right here in the midst of the delusion that's already manifesting. And and this Contemplation and considering the activity of fear, and not moving away from fear. There's a discourse where the Buddha specifically talks about this. When fear arises, I'll keep doing what I'm doing until I have seen through fear, until I realise freedom from fear. An inspiring example, and of course, those of you that have read Ajahn Chah's teachings also would be aware of how daring. He was in his pursuits of not being fooled by his conditioning that produced fear. And one of the really important teachings, one of the important things to realise with regards to studying our relationship with fear is to see how fear and desire go together. Like when we experience fear, we might think, oh, I just want to be free from fear. I just want to overcome fear. Or I don't want to have fear, which is another expression of desire. We've got to get a lot more subtle than that. We've got to get really subtle and start to not just think, but start to investigate, inwardly investigate in the quietude of, Contemplation, investigate in our bodies the dynamic, the activity of fear. And start to see how desire and fear work together. That if, for instance, you have Mm -hmm. desire arises, like maybe you've got an important meeting to take part in, and you really want the meeting to be successful, that's understandable. But if we attach to that desire, then what we probably don't see is that we create and attach to the fear that it won't go well. The selfless motivation for a meeting to go well doesn't have to give rise to the fear and attachment and tendency, risk of getting lost in the fear that it won't go well. If we don't understand that, we can be totally caught up in wanting to be free from fear, desperately wanting to be free from fear, and just creating and fueling and feeding fear. The idea that we can be free in our relationship with fear and not free in our relationship with desire actually is kind of crazy. That's like saying, I want to lift up the front of my hand but not the back of my hand, (laughs) which obviously we wouldn't have such a crazy thought. Then We know they go together. But regularly, again, probably for most people, it's the case that they're not able to really read the dynamic of consciousness, read their own hearts, read their own minds, and see how desire and fear work together. We can want to be free from desire, but we've got to be able to let go of that wanting. What does that mean? Well, this is what... Contemplative task is encouraging us to consider, to look into. What does it mean to want without clinging? Can we do it? It's like, how can you hold the steering wheel of the car without clinging to it? Well, you just do it, you learn, you hold you hold it too tightly and you get stiff shoulders and get a headache. Hold it too lightly and you let go of the wheel. That's not it. So you learn. Holding physically like that is one thing. Well, we can internalize that appreciation and start to feel what does it mean to hold wanting in a way that's not clinging. And then maybe we discover how we're not creating this, all this fear that ends up going into the backlog and building, creating, feeding these parent monsters you know, that terrify us mm. we stop creating them yeah. desire is not something to get rid of fear is not something to get rid of mm. we don't have desire like you know if parents don't want to look after their children well the children don't survive you know. it's important that parents want to but if parents cling to the child uh, The child's not going to grow up very well so wanting without clinging is one of life's most important tasks and likewise with fear we wouldn't want to get rid of fear getting rid of fear is like getting rid of an aspect of intelligence you you do all sorts of foolish things you know it's a dog about to bite you and you just stand there and start spreading loving kindness that's ridiculous if the dogs are crazy dogs about to bite you. You're supposed to run. That's what fear does. You know, the emotion of fear means there's a, an injection of adrenaline and the blood vessels constrict and you can move faster. That's the function of fear. A suitable function of fear. Unfortunately, because if we don't have real wisdom, if we don't have a wise perspective, On fear, if we don't have a wise perspective on the whole body and mind, then we cling to fear, we cling to desire, and so we've got samsara, this apparently endless cycle spinning around, very painful, very tedious. But fortunately, that's not the end of the story. We do have the Dhamma teachings, which means we can develop our spiritual faculties develop mindfulness, develop restraint, develop wise reflection, step back and study our relationship with desire, our relationship with fear. And in studying, learn to see, really learn to see how to, how to cultivate a wise relationship, one whereby our well-being is not obstructed, our well-being is not uh, undermined just because there's a moment of desire or fear. Desire and fear, once again, perfectly natural expressions of our heart energy, but if we don't understand how to relate to our heart energy in a wise, sensitive, intelligent way, then we just cling. And that creates all sorts of obstructions and confusion. So, of course, thinking about this is not enough. We need to Go deeper and really engage in a feeling investigation, feeling into the whole body-mind. When fear arises, what happens to our guts, what happens to our shoulders? Being there for it and learning the whole body-mind to experiment, to investigate. Is it possible, instead of defaulting to a reaction based on wrong thinking... Can we exercise mindfulness and restraint and wise reflection and take a deep breath and create a sense of space and investigate that fear? Of course, I'm not talking about if a crazy dog is about to bite you, that's, you want to just run. But a lot of the things that we feel afraid of, we're not really obliged to be reacting with fear. The fear is an expression of this backlog of Denied life and our reactions are not proportionate. We overreact and, and are thereby vulnerable to being manipulated. And so learning how to engage the expressions of delusion like compulsive fear, for instance, or anxiety. And I've spoken many times before about well i've used that acronym pefs um, precepts exercise food and support it's a checklist that is really helpful yeah. got something difficult like chronic fear or you know, to deal with anxiety yeah. just thinking that going somewhere else doing something else taking medication blaming, these assumptions are not the only way of dealing with it. In fact, the first thing to check up on is our precepts. How committed are we to honesty, to integrity? Because if we don't, for instance, know we're telling lies when we're telling lies because it's so normal that people are regrettably being less than impeccable, less than honest, we can pick up the habit of compulsively lying to others and lying to ourselves. And if we don't know it, then inwardly suffer fragmentation. There isn't an integrated sense of inner security. and become deeply divided, just as if we steal from somebody else. Next time we see them, we don't feel so good. You've lied to somebody or stolen from somebody and then you meet them and you don't have such a good feeling. Well, Likewise, if we're lying to ourselves, we don't feel so good inwardly. Once again, this is, only becomes apparent when we start to have the ability to really read our own hearts and our own minds, start to feel the consequences of breaking precepts, for instance. Or exercise is also very important. Many, many people spend a lot of their day very sedentary, sitting over computers or doing tasks that don't require a lot of physical activity and and yet our emotions are being stirred up. The news that we hear, the entertainment that you might subject yourself to and stirs up all the emotions and yet all these hormones rushing through the body but no physical way of processing them, that can create, that can feed into the backlog of denied fear. On a very physical level, can be holding a lot of stress and a lot of chemicals rushing through the body, unprocessed, unpurified. The is can be a very effective way of learning to get a handle on fear going for a long walk, going swimming. Many of us probably are not overly keen on doing lots of physical work but when you do it, you feel better and that's worth paying attention to. Food also, precepts, exercise, food and support. Consider the food that we eat. The idea of suffering from fear and anxiety and then still just eating whatever we feel like when we feel like it. And often it's the case that outrageous mood swings can be traced to diet. Some careful attention to that, doing a little research and find out what happens happens when you eat this sort of food or that sort of food. And thankfully these days we have really access to all sorts of research that we can find out for ourselves we don't necessarily have to go and find some expert to tell us the consequence of the food that we eat and then support precepts, exercise, food support these points of reference that are worth checking on what can I be doing so that I get a better handle on this reaction from which I'm suffering. that I feel a victim. Often it's the case we feel victims to these reactions. Again, as I was saying earlier, because we pushed into the swamp of unawareness these emotional activities and they've become excessive or distorted. So to have a sense of where's the community that I feel I belong to? Because we are social animals, and if we don't actually live with the people that we feel are our community, then these days is again, the good fortune of being able to have a virtual community and people we can check in with various means and reaffirm a sense of shared participation in this experience of life. It's really, really helpful to the point of being essential. We know who we can turn to if we feel we need support. And if we don't have it, well then, for instance, we don't have a sense of friendship or wise counsel that we can turn to when we need it. Well then we, we naturally feel afraid, we're vulnerable. So another really important lesson in terms of getting a handle on Something like fear is is agility of attention mm-hmm. we for instance try to approach everything with the same the same attitude you'd be like a a gardener you, know, you, you put some plants in some seeds some bulbs some saplings and Obviously you want them to grow and want them to develop and so you keep checking on them but you don't know how to read the various weeds that come along. The various weeds and critters that threaten to destroy uh, what you've been planting. Because there are some weeds that come along that actually... Well, I didn't plant that. I just planted this but I didn't plant that that's growing there. But if you know how to read it you say, well actually that thing that's self-seeded there is... That's quite a protection for what I've been it's, it's, it's insignificant. Just leave it there. Don't have to do anything about it. Don't have to spend time and energy removing that particular plant. But then there's other ones that, well, yeah, when I get around to it, I'll, I'll go and do a session and remove those particular weeds because they can be a nuisance. And yet there's another category which, if you know how to read them, you say, well, that's dangerous, That that we've got to really remove. Those weeds there will just take over and will suffocate anything else. So we have a different approach to what grows in the garden depending on whether we're able to read them accurately or not. Well, so it is with the levels of intensity and complexity of something like fear or all the other emotions for that matter but on this occasion considering fear Where's it coming from? How do we approach it? What's the level of intensity? What's the level of complexity? Some expressions, just, you just don't pay attention to them and they'll go away. Mm. Others, you've really got to study them. So where did this come from? Maybe, maybe you've got to think about it and put some time aside to... You know, really look into it, to feel it. Where is it in the body? Where is this expression of fear? Strike up a conversation with it. Get to know it until we see it and see through see through it, see beyond it. So some expressions of fear just don't give them any attention, they'll go away. Others you need to really engage with and study and develop a communication with until letting go happens and then there's also it's important to know that there are some expressions of fear that you're not going to be able to get a handle on right now there are some expressions of fear that we have to just be willing to endure depending on what we've pushed into unawareness and and for how long we've done it and Sometimes we have to endure fear for a very long time until letting go happens. So again, if we, if we don't have agility, if we don't have a, an ability to read the degree of intensity, the degree of complexity, then we can misperceive these activities of heart and body and mind. and In fact, make them worse. There are some expressions of fear, for instance, for some people. Things happen at a very, very early stage of life. Any of you that have been in therapy or studied a little psychology will know that things that happen very, very early on in life before the cognitive processes are established aren't going to be dealt with by cognitive therapy. Thinking about your problems is not going to have any impact at all. Yeah, there needs to be a completely different approach, and then there are those experiences that happen later on in life. Maybe something happened during your teenage years—you got overly domineering parents or teachers that bullied you into being a high achiever, and you're desperately afraid of failing. And well, it's a different way of dealing with that you know, fear of failure, or maybe it's societal. Activities you know, things that are happening in the world around us that cause fear, things we read uh, you can like at the moment in this this country the some of the treasured and valued institutions uh, like the, the precious NHS is under threat from the the mega wealthy pharmaceutical companies and managers who prioritize profit over compassion and decency. The NHS is really under stress and that's disturbing. can give rise to real anxiety. The BBC got many wonderful qualities to it and now under pressure from those again mega wealthy corporations and Netflix and Amazon and iTunes and all the other Businesses out there that are producing uh, something similar to the BBC, and you think the BBC is the BBC going to last? Is the NHS going to last? Is the monarchy going to last? Things happening on that level, particularly for the older generation, perhaps you know, seeing structures changing. So, learning how to read where the fear is coming from, mm-hmm. the level of intensity—is it something we can just don't pay attention to it? Is it something we need to study? Is it something we need to endure? All of these skills are important if we want to come into a conscious relationship with fear. If we're interested in awakening, then just turning away from, running away from the experience of fear or any other manifestation of delusion, any expression of delusion, is not the path. Maybe it's a more subtle expression of fear and if we submit ourselves to the spiritual exercises, if we take the Buddha's medicine and, and then the armoring that we've established around this deluded personality, this apparently solid, substantial sense of self, uh, me and my way of doing things, starts to become a little less secure, and that can really be unsettling. And that's not rare how people take the Buddha's medicine and, and then they don't like what they find out, uh, the apparent insubstantial nature of egoic existence. Yeah. Well, if I'm not this sense of me that I have been getting around believing that I am, then who am I? that can be really frightening. And if we haven't prepared ourselves with a conscious relationship with fear, if we've just avoided fear, if we've just pushed fear into unawareness, then maybe at that point we're going to miss a really important lesson for learning to let go and trust in Dhamma, trust in reality. Mm -hmm. So these... Habits that we accumulate, whether it's because of the conditioning we go through or our own degree of unawareness and the habits that we accumulate for avoiding the consequences of delusion, like for instance, you know, undeveloped relationship with fear and mm, if we don't address them, then regrettably they just become more compounded, more complex. Mm more difficult to deal with. But if we do address them, if we do stop running after awakening and thinking that it's somewhere else, another retreat, another book to read, more information about Dhamma, another YouTube video to watch, getting something more to compensate for the sense of inner lacking. If we stop and just look at that feeling of inner lacking, and feel what we often have to feel, which is the fear surrounding it, the fear when we're faced with, really faced with darkness, faced with not knowing, and learn to not tremble, not shake, not wobble, not waver, in the face of that intensity, maybe what we discover is a deepening of understanding. uh, That, Monster, that apparent monster, wasn't a monster at all. It was just an apparition that we created by avoiding the reality. It could well be that as we approach the end of our lives and we haven't realised what the Buddha realised, apaya or fearlessness. And, you know, but... If we've practiced in a way whereby we're not habitually avoiding fear, we're interested in developing an honest awareness of fear, then maybe we'll reach the point where what we're dealing with is here and now fear. It's the backlog of denied fear that obstructs inner clarity. Much of the here and now fear is manageable. Much of what we think is intolerable is really tolerable. It's what we've pushed into unawareness that creates the confusion. It's what we've pushed into unawareness that obstructs access to inner confidence, inner clarity, inner calm. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.